Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 1st of October, if you can believe it. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we have Australia in path of global economic shock front, where we'll be discussing the crisis in the UK, the Evergrande crisis in China and the Australian housing bubble. And secondly, Speculators' economic model leads to fascism, and we'll discuss there the origins of the neoliberal economic model uh, coinciding with fascism. Now, if you like the show, uh, don't forget to subscribe and hit the notifications bell to be alerted to new updates. Uh, like the hit the like button and share it as widely as possible as well. So on to our first topic, Australia in path of global economic shock front. So we have a combination of events bearing down across the globe and Australia is one of the major fronts in that uh, oncoming shock. Now we want to talk quickly first though about the crisis in the United Kingdom where um, we'll put up images in the background as we're talking, people are probably seen on the news, um, people queuing up. Uh, for petrol. Um, I mean, honestly, it reminded me of recent scenes in Lebanon uh, mm. and it really shows you where all so-called develop, developed economies are heading if we don't begin to rethink our economic model. Um, well, Lisa, just quickly, it shows you how quickly things can break down with this current economic model. Um, and there's different reasons for the breakdown, but when it happens, it can happen very fast because there's actually no resilience in it. There's, all, there's too many assumptions in the neoliberal model and because it's neoliberal which basically means they don't want any sort of you know they want to have minimal government involvement the governments always react too slowly as well yeah. right and then who suffers the people queuing up mm -hmm. wondering how the hell did this happen yeah so two-thirds of all petrol stations in the UK on as of the 26th of September had no petrol um, and you know uh, even fights were breaking out and so forth as people tried to get petrol in their cars people couldn't get to work um, part of the reason for this is a shortage of drivers which has come on because of uh, restrictions on foreign workers coming in because of uh, the Brexit, the UK exiting the European Union. Um, when the pandemic struck also a lot of foreign workers from parts of Europe went home and have not since come back because of the Brexit restrictions. Um, there's also simultaneously a gas crisis. Um, now. This is across all of Europe where prices have increased by 400% in recent times. There's also a lack of storage capacity in Britain uh, because in 2017 they closed the main reserve at Roth off York, the Yorkshire coast which stored 70% but was costly to maintain. There's been a recent decline in um, the source of gas for the UK from the North Sea reserves so Britain is now mainly relying on imported gas. And because of Brexit too, by the way, they're pretty much at the bottom of the list of European countries to get that gas. Um, they also may be increasingly reliant on Russia, gas, gas from Russia, which they're not, um, you know, in the best of terms of relationship with. And they've also had, of course, as we have all had, an increasing over-reliance on things like wind and solar power, 
although I will say that there's now all of a sudden a big discussion about um, moving to faster, even from the government, faster approvals for new nuclear power plants, which is crucial. Now, there's also been soaring prices. Um, a lot of supermarket shelves have been found empty uh, because of the delivery delays um, and because of the surging power prices. Fertiliser companies have closed, steel producers have partially suspended operations, even energy suppliers, um, which are abundant as we see in our own country, have collapsed and shut down uh, and the press is talking about serious fears of industrial collapse and also particularly heading into winter now, um, serious fears that there won't be enough gas for heating and so forth. Um, now the government has mobilised the army to begin to um, drive trucks to uh, move oil and other things from where they're to, to where they're needed and they've issued temporary visas to allow foreign workers in until Christmas, although um, how much that'll be taken up is dubious, yeah. um, particularly for fuel tanker drivers and poultry workers, which has been an industry affected. They are also, by the way, facing a lack of agricultural workers as we face here in our own country. Mm. Um, they're putting out um, pleas to have people who've retired from um, truck driving and so forth to come back. There's an assumption, Elisa, that uh, you know the free market sees these things coming, you know, and is always prepared to uh, respond to the need as it comes. And of course, it just it too often breaks down, and that's where um, you know when you then you when you see the things that break down, it's those areas where people should have have seen it coming, right? And if you just compare the UK to Australia, we've got a an over-dependence on foreign agricultural workers too, right? And that's a huge problem in this country at the moment. Um, and, and then there's a lot of bureaucracy in the way of of, um, of how to solve the problem. Our, our mugs uh, were provided to us by Louise Ackland, who, you know, deals with this situation up in Mildura. And um, it's a terrible crisis for people involved in agricultural industry trying to get the workers. Mm. Um, both and 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 then not only not only shouldn't the problem been, have happened in the first place, but th they've got ideas of how to deal with deal with it, right? And then the bureaucracy of the government gets in the way because they want to do it in their they want to do it in their own way and always too late. Um, but I think you know people do have to take stock of these things and go, why did we let these kind of vulnerabilities build up? Because governments in the past would never have let that happen. But under a free market neoliberal ideology, right, anything, you know, any, almost anything goes, let, let, you know, let people become dependent and it mm. becomes a vulnerability. And then when it goes bad, it goes very bad. And the bulk of our entire economies in most nations across the world is devoted to the service sector, paper shuffling. Yep. And a lot of financial speculation, which we're going to talk about a bit more. But I wanted to bring in here... Uh, amid warnings um, from various commentators all over the world of co a combination of financial blowouts in the housing bubbles, which are all explosion points globally, um, other credit bubbles, debt bubbles, bond markets, etc. We have, um, which has been in the headlines somewhat, um, the near collapse of China's Evergrande, its biggest real estate developer. It's in the last two weeks defaulted on two bond payments held by international speculators, including big banks like BlackRock and HSBC. 
um, which by the way have been buying up the bonds in this company in recent times, even though it hasn't Knowing been it issuing it hasn't been issuing new bonds since the beginning of 2020. So it was obviously known to be vulnerable for that time. So it's all a you know speculative game. Um, but the way China is reacting has put uh, international speculators right off guard. Um, China has just, um, well, Evergrande has just announced that it's selling a stake in Shenzhen Bank to a state-owned, Chinese state-owned asset management firm to provide extra capital to protect the, the individuals, the domestic citizens in China who have arranged to have a new home or an apartment building from this company. So it's not going to protect the speculators, particularly the international speculators who are expected to get a 70% haircut as this company is wound back and reorganised. Um, hence the bit of concern from overseas on the 17th of September, there was a meeting between major Wall Street banks and financial firms like BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, Fidelity Investments, Citadel and Blackstone and others with the People's Bank of China and the Chinese Security, Securities Regulatory Commission um, because of that concern, Bloomberg, Bloomberg reported that global investors have been unnerved by the regulatory onslaught from Beijing and that billions of dollars in potential profits are at stake for Wall Street. But what they're referring to of this regulatory onslaught is that China has been acting to, for some years actually, uh, to rein in its housing bubble. Last year, like most countries, it pumped out a bit more money uh, during the COVID crisis to get the economy going. So it's had to uh, re, you know, reinforce its efforts to clamp down on the speculative housing bubble. And that is working because it knows that that's out of control. New home sales in China are down 27% in August and land sales are down 90% so far this month. So there's a big impact of that, but the speculators don't like it. Um, the Asia Times said on September 24th, uh, far from a Lehman moment, the Evergrande crisis was a preemptive popping of a bubble, the sort of action that US authorities might have been wise to take in 2004 before the collapse of the US housing market nearly took down the global banking system. So although Evergrande has a huge debt um, and could set off, because anything could set off a crisis through the global system, uh, it won't set off a crisis throughout the Chinese financial system. One, there's no massive bubble of derivatives built on top of Evergrande's debt. Secondly, Chinese banks uh, and their depositors are protected from such a collapse with Glass-Steagall type regulations which prevent deposit-taking banks from speculating. Now, but Lisa, but that, that uh, quote by uh, the Asia Times is quite extraordinary because that is what China has done. China has said, we're going to, we've got a bubble here and we're going to pop it. Now, and yeah, so the it Asia... It has consequences, but you yeah, can at least that's control right. it. It's going to be a controlled demolition of the bubble, hmm. right? Um, whereas um, when the crash happened in 2008, people, at that point people saw, oh, this thing's come crashing down. Then, then you could have said... Well, oh, wouldn't it have been better if we had have done this ourselves in a controlled way before it got this bad? And we're about to go through it. Australia's in the same position right now. But if you suggested that, if you suggested to people, look, wise up, your home being worth a million dollars is not worth it to the economy. 
right? Because you've got to, you've got to have an economy that, only, that can only afford 0.1% interest rates, and that means no one can afford to retire, and it, to exp no, no young person will be able to afford a home at, 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 those, at those prices. This, has got to, this bubble, this 20-year bubble has got us nowhere. Let's pop it. Let's deliberately reduce house prices in Australia. Right? Everyone would freak out, no, but guess what? It's going to happen anyway. And that's what the 2008 thing was about. And let's talk about that now here. Yeah. But, this, but, but China has said, okay, no, we are going to pop our bubble. Yes, it'll have consequences and we'll deal with those consequences that comes up. But the alternative is worse. And I'll just add that while you're doing that, because you don't just let the chips fall where they may, you reorganise your economy to the productive sector, which exactly. is exactly what China's doing. So. You know, if you're going to have a lot of real estate um, developers and various other, like even um, real estate sellers, losing their jobs, well, you're going to be providing jobs in other areas that are going to actually allow you to deal with crises like the US is dealing with right now. So, you know, you've got to reorient. But coming to the Australian housing bubble, as you raised, because this is exactly the debate that's going on here, where all kinds of agencies are saying, do we have to rein this thing in? So the OECD and the IMF um, have both referenced this and they've both called for or supported a review of the Reserve Bank's monetary policy framework, which right now is basically 0.1% interest rates until 2024 and quantitative easing of $4 billion a week, as well as a variety of other minor things. Um, now, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has reportedly said he's open to an inquiry into the RBA framework after the next election, uh, convenient for him. Might be too late, Josh. Yep, um, but I'll go through some of these reports. The OECD's economic survey uh, said that with ha high household debt and rising house prices, macroprudential tools should be the primary lever to curb emerging risks in the housing market. And additionally, called on the government and APRA to do more to encourage small business lending in order to foster economic recovery, pointing out that our rates, our, the, the rates that banks lend to small business is very low compared to our international peers. Uh, and That's an understatement. Of course, it pointed to our bank's preference for mortgage lending as a main driver of that based on the uh, lower risk weightings for lending to mortgages and pointed out that 95% of all loans to small to medium enterprises are only those secure, that can be secured by property collateral. So it all depends on you know, the back, backdrop of the property bubble. So they're, assen they're essentially mortgage loans as well. That's, that's the problem there. And, mm -hmm. and that means no small business can start without risking your home. Yeah. So apparently a quarter of... Uh, small to medium enterprises are not back for loans, one quarter. Um, now, Frydenberg, in response to this, said that the government will continue to pursue reforms to ensure small and emerging businesses have access to a range of funding sources. <laughs> so they're, they're going to continue to pursue it. Well, if they've been pursuing it so far, it hasn't had much impact. Uh, now, the IMF bolstered this in their biannual assessment of Australia's economy, saying that macroprudential policy should be tightened to address gradually rising financial stability risks, particularly warning about high debt-to-income mortgages and surging housing prices. 
It said lending standards should be monitored closely and macroprudential measures should be employed to address incipient risks. So they're all basically saying, you know, the, the Reserve Bank's roster of interest rate, ultra-low interest rates, yep. um, QE, etc., this is making the housing bubble worse. And these are two, you know, major international agencies, right? The IMF and the OECD are saying, Australia, you have a huge problem. But it's being echoed inside Australia as well from unlikely um, quarters. And... Uh, you know, when, they, when, when you hear this chorus like this, it is a huge problem. So there's been this debate f since, um, uh, well, before 2008, the famous story is the economist, Elisa Steve Keen, said that the property market would crash here and he put a bet on it, um, that he would walk to the top of Mount Kosciuszko if it didn't. He was 100% right. What he couldn't have forecast is the extraordinary length, nobody could have forecast the extraordinary lengths the government would go to to stop it from happening. So he was, Steve King was basically predicting something like this. If, that, if a 747 flies straight down, it's going to crash into the ground. Right? That was how accurate his prediction was. They didn't, he couldn't have forecast. There was some superhero come in with the biggest um, you know, uh, blow-up castle <laughs> to, to absorb the impact. Right? It's, it's that extraordinary what the government did. They broke all their own rules, all the free market rules, to keep this property bubble and the banks up at all costs. But all it ever, and we've said this for, what's this, it's now, this is 13 years later after the 2008 crisis, right? Um, and we've been right all the time. All they've done at every stage where it looks like it could have collapsed is kick the can down the road. Mm -hmm. So if you kick the can down the road, all you're doing is making the inevitable crash bigger when it happens. Right, so now it's not just Steve Keane, the Citizens Party, Martin North, etc. Um, lots of you know, lots of other voices on the sort of the sidelines saying this is going to happen. Now you've got the IMF and the OECD saying Australia, you've got a huge problem here, mm -hmm. right? And so that's that brings us to you know, what do we do? But keep going. We'll add some other voices to the mix. The Reserve Bank Assistant Governor Michelle Bullock gave a speech on the twenty third of September. And she presented some data showing a rise in risky, riskier home lending based on leverage ratios. Um, also, she talked about the dramatic rebound of the housing market in this recent period due to lower rates, home builder schemes, etc. Uh, and warned of the impact of economic an economic shock hitting Australia combined with falling houses, housing prices. If you look at the chart, uh, Elisa, the loan commitments, look at the red line. Now, so... The owner-occupier, is, which is the blue line, that's something that's almost, it, it's pretty easy for governments to stimulate that through their first homeowners grants and those sort of things, right? The, the red line is just speculators, right? Where banks are now funneling out, the, this, this was a huge problem before, and it's back. The banks are funneling out massive amounts of money to the speculators, and that's just, what, what you have is all those people buying properties who aren't going to live in them. Yeah. Right? And that just drives the prices through the moon. And you can moon. see in all three of those lines on that graph the, the spike right at the end, yep. of, you know, of coming to 2021. Yeah. Uh, and this next graph, which shows credit by sector, you can see the credit that the, bumps, uh, the banks are putting into both business in the red line and housing in the blue line. But note from the beginning of that graph, starting around 2000, 2001, 
um, the increasing divergence between those two lines. That's a, th this is a chart that, I mean, this is the RBA's own chart, but we've got our own version of this that Dr. Wilson side did, which goes back to about 1990. And when you go back that far, it is a mirror image, right? Where what used to be, the blue line used to be down below 40%, the red line used to be up above 60%. Yeah. So Inversion. bank lending in Australia, two thirds went to business. And what, what does business do? Business creates the income that, in, that employs the people mm. that um, want to buy the houses and can, pay their, and can pay their mortgages. That's what lending to business does. So when you put all your, when you put all your eggs in the basket of, of lending to people who buy the houses and you're not giving credit to business because essentially they've starved business of credit, well, you're going to run into a problem eventually of housing and affordability, which is what we've got next. Mm -hmm. Yes, so this is from the um, University of New South Wales showing uh, recent figures of mortgage stress, firstly in Sydney. Um, and you can see the darkest red there is in the 60 to 80% range. So you've got house, households, um, 70 to 80% of households in um, financial stress in these areas. And the second graph shows the same uh, mapping for Melbourne. Melbourne. Now, I, just on the Sydney one, Elisa, and I, I, I don't know if we have it, so, um, but we might, we might have it. A few years ago on this program, we showed that map of Sydney, yeah. whereas, but there was all various stages of red, that the big accomplishment of the map we showed two years ago was how um, the median house price in every suburb of Sydney was now over a million dollars, as it was a couple of years ago, right? And this was regarded as a great accomplishment. And we described, because you saw it fan out from the, the inner city suburbs around the bay there into the, into the west, etc. And we described it, though, as that's, that really should be regarded as the spread of a cancer, right? That was, that's what we pointed out a couple of years ago. Now, what, you, what you're seeing is the real cancer because that's the unaffordability that's now taken over. Now, in um, hearings of the House Economics Committee on the 23rd of September, even the bank bosses, big four bank bosses, were calling for the bubble to be reined in. Um, CBA boss Matt Coman called for proactive regulatory action to take some of the heat out of the housing market. He said, we are increasingly concerned about rising housing debt and house prices. Uh, and being the biggest residential mortgage lender, he noted that CBA has already increased its rate benchmark. Shane Elliott from ANZ also said he is concerned about growing household debt in this situation. And Westpac Chief Economist Bill Evans um, said the Reserve Bank policy risks creating a dangerous imbalance in the housing market. And I think, I mean, I'll as someone who's usually cynical about the banks, I found myself less cynical about these statements. I mean, the banks are always going to get in, you know, in front of a parliamentary hearing and say, yeah, 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 we, we, we're responsible citizens, etc. But Common actually has called for the regulator, APRA, to take action. Now, you say, well, why doesn't he take action himself? He's the biggest lender in Australia. Just stop lending or, or lend less for housing. Well, the problem is they... You know, they, they operate as a cartel in, in, in practice, these banks. And so one doesn't want to go out ahead of the others. But um, he's saying, look, we are going so fast here. Can, we, can you put up some more 
um, speeding restrictions on the signs. So we all know instead of going 150 k's an hour, we should be going 100 k's an hour. So then we all have to follow those. And that means things like potentially changing the risk weightings on mortgages so that they're not totally favourable um, to the banks, raising the level at which um, there's, an int- there's, a, there's a benchmark interest rates that, that mortgages are assessed against that um, allows for the, 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 the buffer if interest rates do go up, right? And, and they, sh- they, should, this is a sort of, they could raise that. That's the sort of macro prudential stuff Africa could do to force the banks to lower their lending. That's what it's actually called for, right? So I, I think it's like, um, uh, it's not a fake scream. There's a, there's, a, there's a note of terror there in, in the actual uh, voice. And that's why we, we mentioned earlier, we've got these international agencies, but we've got Australian voices now mm. saying the same thing. And obviously people in the government know this is a fairly serious problem, but they probably just don't you know, know how to react. Well, to I, don't know what they know. I don't know what they know because what we know for the last two years, three years, is they put everything into this one um, basket. Yeah. Right? They, they pulled out all the stuff. I mean, Josh Frydenberg has politically assassinated the former head of ASIC to get him out of the way mm-hmm. so that his regulations on the banks would not get in the way of propping up the property market. Michael Sucker did everything in his power to pump up the property market, right? So this, you know, it, it's funny that the banks themselves are expressing more concern than the government has shown. Mm. Well, the Council of Foreign Regulators, I was going to say, on the 24th, met, and this includes the regulators and the Treasury, um, they discussed, um, according to the report, possible macroprudential policy responses to curb high-risk borrowing, which is lending in excess of six times the borrower's income, but they're not expected to move on anything (laughs) until next year. Um, Where, on the other hand, New Zealand has just announced major property tax reforms to dampen the property boom. Uh, now, one other thing I wanted to raise is the term funding facility, which has been, there's been a number of um, investigative pieces recently saying this has just been a massive um, boon for the fun. banks. Uh, and this has been raised again this week in an article that was published in a number of places, including the conversation by Kevin Davis, Emeritus Professor of Finance at the University of Melbourne. And he t- talked about the fact that the term funding facility um, which is a, essentially a reserve bank, meaning taxpayer subsidised funding, very low interest rate loans for the banks, was supposed to increase lending to small to medium enterprises, but instead has enriched the banks and their shareholders. You know, they've either had the money sitting in the reserve bank accounts or they've used yeah. it to buy back their own shares and boost their profits. No, it's a joke. And what they should have done all along is what we advocate, use a national bank to get the money out there directly. Right, the Reserve Bank could fund the National Bank. We should set up a National Development Bank. We should set up a postal bank that can be a retail arm of it, and excess credit, uh, sorry, uh, deposits go into the National Development Bank. But if governments want to do something, don't muck around with price signals. Don't say to the private banks, "Here, we'll give you the money, and you find something special to do with it." Please lend it to small business because they're not going to. They've just shown they haven't. Right? Do it yourselves. Let's get these special public credit um, facilities set up like we used to have that uh, (coughs) excuse me every successful economy in the world is based on these sort of things that yeah let the private banks will always make the decisions that are most profitable for them but there's so much wealth to be created by making sure the productive economy is has credit 
right? And But it's got to be done directly. And there's mm -hmm. ways to, to, to set these institutions up, like we advocate a national bank, development bank could be, um, where you get all the best expertise, expertise, and you don't do it. You don't do it silly ways. You don't just. You're not Johnny Appleseed going around throwing money around as as confetti. You're targeting into the things that are going to create wealth and underpin services, etc. For every part of Australia, regional, you know, uh, urban, etc. And that's how you deal with this. Hmm. And these governments don't want to do that. That's that's what neoliberalism is. And we're at this point now where suddenly everyone's screaming about it. Yep, so talking about neoliberalism, we'll move on to our second topic. Speculators' economic model leads to fascism. Um, and we're, we really want to stress that the necessity for a new economic model to be in, introduced before everything starts breaking down, like we're seeing the start of in, with these scenes in the UK this week, is absolutely urgent um, because while productive economies... Uh, are those like China that tend to restrict the banks and regulate speculation out of existence. And, we're, and us, used to, we, what we used to be. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, speculative economies oriented to looting the people end up restricting the people. Um, and we want to make a bit of a plug for a new little pamphlet we've put out about, it's called Who Ended the Bretton Woods System? An Open an Age of Infinite Speculation which talks about um, the 50th anniversary since the end of the Bretton Woods uh, financial arrangement, which happened on 15th of August 1971, is when it was ended. But that arrangement was designed after World War II, particularly in the vision of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the US president, um, to have such a framework that nations agreed to of regulation uh, so that uplifting nations with development and productive activity would be uh, at the forefront, would be fostered yep. as opposed to speculation. It provided stability because you had things like fixed exchange rates, etc., um, and, a, and a, uh, an exchange reserve with the, uh, with, with, uh, the price of gold so everyone it could be transparent. Um, but more importantly, Elisa, in those couple of decades that Bretton Woods was in place, it was the period of greatest economic productivity growth in the history of the world, mm -hmm. those, those couple of decades. And then when it crashed and was dismantled, that, that productivity has never come back and instead we've had an explosion of speculation. Now, the Bank for International Settlements, which we have talked about a lot in this show in recent years because it uh, dictated rules after the global financial crash to confiscate people's savings to save collapsing banks, known as bail-in laws, was a key part of the dismantling of the Bretton Woods system. In fact, as soon as Bretton Woods was set up, it began to white ant and lead the speculative agenda that mm. eventually demolished it. Um, but the origins of that Bank for International Settlement started... Um, in the late 1800s, coming into the early 1900s, in the pre-World War I period in particular, uh, where there were a series of international conferences led by the head of the Bank of England, Montague Norman, and his counterparts in the United States and France to set up central banks. Um, in the early phases, they were basically answerable or set up as satellites in the case of countries like Italy and Austria, of the Bank of England and then eventually in the case of Germany um, uh, where Helmar Schacht, the finance minister, worked 
very he was the key collaborator, in fact, with Montague Norman to establish the Bank for International Settlements. So the idea was um, to dictate policy of nations through banking, because of course banking is the critical thing. Where the funding goes is going to determine what your economy is oriented to. Yep. And in the post-World War I period, that was set up and enforced the doctrine of austerity. We'd spent all this money on the war, well now we have to pay it back. How are we going to pay it back? Austerity, slashing wages, slashing the public sector, shutting down through, and Austria was a test tube for this. Italy under Mussolini affected uh, it in the most um, thoroughgoing way. That's where the term fascism comes from, uh, where they created a partnership between government and private agencies to strip and loot the economy. Uh, now the public wealth, the common good, was, was um, subjugated to the demands of international finance, mm -hmm. right? And, of course, people... When they lose their services, when they lose their, their economic security, etc., react, and that's where the the the, uh, the police state side of the, these fascists fascism was an economic model. Yeah. But the police state agenda associated with that was necessary to enforce to enforce it on a population that would always react to it R because they're up, suffering. Exactly, rise up against it. So you know this kind of bone crushing austerity necessitated fascist police states to stop the opposition to it. The Bank for International Settlements itself coming out of that arrangement of various central banks was set up in 1930. And when the Bretton Woods Conference took place in 1944, there was a motion to shut down the Bank for International Settlements and that was universally accepted as being absolutely necessary because the BIS has, had acted as a conduit for the Nazis in terms of both finance and the Bank of England itself and the Bank of England, facilitated... Yep. They, they, they sold Czechoslovakia's gold for the Nazis. And for intelligence. So the BIS yeah. also acted as an independent go-between. Because remember, the BIS is the one agency, like the UN in New York and so forth, where it's completely uh, in its own sovereign territory. I mean, they don't have to pay taxes. Um, they've got all the kind of diplomatic immunity you can imagine uh, they've got their own medical facilities. It's completely... The Swiss police cannot go inside the BIS headquarters in Basel, Elisa. Yeah. It is a, it, they, they have full diplomatic immunity inside there. And that's extraordinary because there's a reason that's, that's true for the UN in New York, right? Because, you know, the UN has to exist in one country. This is a meeting of bankers. Why are, the, why are these bankers, central bankers, elevated above the laws of all nations as well, Right. Um, that's the model. Right there is the nub of the model of what we're dealing with on a global scale, which is why we keep highlighting the banking sector because that's where this, these kind of draconian um, anti-nation-state anti policies start. Exactly. And, you know, that motion to destroy, to shut down the Bank for International Settlements uh, was ultimately stopped and blocked by the British delegate, John Maynard Keynes, um, who went so far as threatening to leave the conference. And at one point he was so hysterical, people thought he was having a heart attack. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so basically it remained in the final communique that we would shut down the BIS at the earliest possible uh, moment. But then with Roosevelt's death, um, changes in the United Kingdom um, and, and 
push by the financial authorities in the UK and the US to sustain it and to build, you know, carve out a role for it, um, it, it continued and of course it took over um, control of global central banks and as we know today has got an immense influence over central banks across the world including our own. Uh, and as Bretton Woods was dismantled, of course, um, we had a carving out of whole new markets uh, that were existing outside of any national jurisdiction. So speculative markets that grew up outside of any nation, outside of control of any government. Yep. We won't go through the details, but you can read all the details in this um, package. Uh, and the advent of neoliberalism, which, you know, really taking hold uh, where you are not allowed to regulate anything, where government intervention of any kind is um, discouraged. No, for sure. And we're, we're suffering the consequences of that to this day. So uh, essentially you had um, uh, a, a multi-decade building up of this speculative bubble and 2008 was when it really did um, implode. Right, but there'd been lots of pre, you know pre-tremors before that, and we're in Melbourne. We know what earthquakes are like now, having <laughs> gone through one last week. Um, but that's what you know. There's all these pre-tremors to do with derivatives, etc. But 2008 was the big one, and um, you can see in the UK's, especially more than any other country, but but you know in the United States and, and, and others as well. But certainly the UK. What did they do in response to the 2008? Where they come up with a trillion pounds to bail out the banks? What did they do to the, UK, the British people? Bone-crushing austerity. There's still wages in the in the in the 13 years since since 2008. Wages in the UK have not risen at all, right? And that's what the UK people were sub subjected to um, by the same government that bailed out the even nationalised the banks to bail them out for crying out loud, right? And that's 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 the microcosm of of, of how this policy actually works. Um, so you know we need to. Uh, take stock, if you think about this whole conversation, um, our biggest threat economically right now is the housing market, right? It, it, when it goes, this whole house of cards, the derivatives of Australian banks, etc., all implodes on top of that. What will governments do then? Yes. We have put out a suite of policies anticipating this, both the proactive policies like um, national bank you know, National Development Bank, etc. We also have a policy, Elisa, to, for a moratorium on home foreclosures so that you don't do allow to happen here what happened in the US after 2008 where the banks just got to, the same banks had been bailed out, got to mass foreclose on 12 million people, right? Mostly unjustly, uh, etc. No, no, we're not going to let that happen here. We've revived the policies that Australia actually admirably implemented in the Great Depression here. Right, where they stopped home foreclosures then as well. We need to do that again so the banks just don't have open slather. And but we have to anticipate this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then and when you anticipate, then the question is should we should we wait till it does happen or should we actually make it happen so we have a degree of control over it while we reorganise our economy? That's right. Now give us a call to find out how you can get involved in helping us fight for this new economic model because it has to happen as you said now ahead of time and you know we nearly don't have such thing as ahead of time we're there uh, you can subscribe to the alert service to get that weekly you can join us as a member which is crucial right now with the increasing requirements to remain as political parties with an election coming up we need new members uh, and you can contact us for a free copy of the alert service if you haven't before
That's the show for this week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week.